invite you also, this week in particular, this week may be unlike any other week, to walk through us, not just on this Sunday morning, but walk through us this entire week. We're going to have a tenebrae service on Friday. You'll see more information on that at the end of the service today. The Epp and Paul group is going to lead us through that service. We'll have a sunrise service here next Sunday morning. We'll have an Easter sunrise out back, weather permitting, followed by a, just a bring-your-own-brunch, and then we'll have our normal service at 1015 with that. There'll also be opportunities to engage with a Good Friday service with Christ the King Anglican Church, who meets here in the, in the afternoons, on Sunday afternoons. They're going to have a Monday Thursday service and a Good Friday service here in this space. And if you've never been, they set up uh, artistic representations of the Stations of the Cross, that are really fabulous to see. So I want to encourage you as you do that. I also want to encourage you in your personal devotions, not even the things here, but really to engage in what's being offered through the learning guide and through the updates through social media this week. There is ample opportunity to slow down, to pay attention, and to respond to the example that Jesus has set for us as we go through this week. So I want to invite you to take advantage of those things. Jane and I had the incredible privilege of spending some time in Rome this past fall. And we stayed at an Airbnb and with a local family. And one morning we sat down and I showed showed our plan for the day to Livia, our host. And as she lowered her spectacles and read over our plans of the places she wanted to go, she was, hmm, you know, making these sounds. And then she added a couple things in. And finally, she pushed it back across and she goes, this makes me happy. She goes, you're not like normal tourists. She goes, you want to see the real Rome. And nothing could have made Jane and I happier than to get the approval of a native as to what our plan was for the day. And one of the places that she, she insisted that we go was a museum that they have in Rome that starts with the history of Rome from before it was Rome, like the prehistory all the way through modern times. And there was way too much of it to see in one day, but we went into part of it. And there's this one room where you walk into, and on all four walls is painted a scene of a triumphal entry. Oftentimes, that's the word, that's the the way that we describe Jesus' entry into Jerusalem that we're going to study today and this week. And it was this awesome painting. You would stand in the middle of the room and you would just rotate and look up at the incredible depiction of one of, and I forget which one he was, one of the emperors, a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's seated in all his utter glory on a, astride a chariot pulled by strong horses. He's followed by the, the strongest of soldiers, orderly and gleaming, perfect in their precision. And there's gifts of the people, cheering people, crowds of people, followed by the slaves and the, and the captives that he's conquered, coming in their chains, carrying their riches that he has gotten for Rome with that. Triumphal entries were a mainstay of 
Roman colonization of the way that they would express and portray their power. They were huge events with that. Today we look at a triumphal entry, and it's easy for us if we just look at the superficial version, if we just think that that word means the same thing when we apply it to Jesus, we're not going to see the real triumphal entry. We're going to see the superficial, just the quick version, and we're going to miss the real thing. So pray with me now that we would be able to see what's really going on when we use these words in association with Jesus. Lord, we so desperately need you to show us what's really happening here. We need you, the wise guide, to open our eyes, to show us where to look, to show us what to see as we walk through these last days of your life before your arrest and crucifixion, burial and resurrection. God, we know there's a version out there the popular version. We want to see the real version. We want to know what's really happening. So give us your Holy Spirit in power. Speak to us as we study this alone and in our groups and this morning. That we might love you more deeply, follow you more closely, see you more clearly, proclaim you more faithfully. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text, we're looking at Matthew 21, starting with verse 1. Now they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples, telling them, go to the village ahead of you. Right away you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you are to say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken of the prophet. Tell the people of Zion, look, your king is coming, unassuming and seated on a donkey, on a colt in the foal of a donkey. Now let's, let's pause here. As I talked about earlier, they're talking about an entry, the entry of a king into the capital. Jerusalem is not just the capital of a country. It is the spiritual capital of a people. And as we look at the images that Matt puts up there, like this was well established in the people's imagination. People understood what to expect in a triumphal entry. They understood what to expect when a conquering king would come into a town. And yet, in the fulfillment of the prophecy, we see that Jesus is going to turn all this on its head. He is going to subvert that imagery. Instead of coming in on a white horse with a sword strapped to his thigh and a spear and and a mighty army behind him, he's going to do what? He's going to ride in on a donkey? And literally, the prophets knew this. They saw ahead, meek and unassuming. Listen, none of what you see up here is meek and unassuming. 
Meekness and unassumingness has nothing to do with the world's triumphal entries. And yet that's how Jesus comes in. He is, in a way, I believe, mocking empire. He's mocking the displays of power that come through violence, that come through bloodshed, that come through oppression, that come through forcible conquest. Instead, he is declaring in no uncertain terms that his kingdom is not like that. It is something very different, no less powerful, but powerful in a very different way. The text goes on. So the disciples went and Jesus did, had instructed them. They brought a donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on it. And he sat on them. Notice no saddle, no gold, no chariot. Simple coats. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, cut branches in the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him. And those who were following kept shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And while I do believe that that they were catching a glimpse, they were understanding that this man is different, that this may be the Messiah, the very one that we desperately need. Save us, save us. This is also caught up in the moment. This is not from deep recognition. This is merely the superficial response to something cool that's happening. Last weekend, they had, uh, we had Joe Martin stage race here, bicycle race here. Um, it's really cool to watch. Like, you go down there and you cheer and you see the racers coming by. But let me tell y'all, growing up in Austin, Texas, I didn't watch bicycle races. Right? I watch football. I watch a football game. I can get into it. I can tell you where the players are and why they do and what the, why they do this and, and what it means. Watching a bicycle race, I'm like, they, she's fast. That, that's a pretty bike. <laughs> like, like, it's fun, and I know a little bit. I'm learning more about it. And I cheer vociferously. Yeah, go, go, go. I ring the bell, right? It's over. I'm, it, what's next? Let's go get lunch. It doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah, maybe someday. It's becoming more as I, as I watch it. But really, it's just, what we see here, I think, are people cheering because people are cheering. They're into it because people are into it, right? You hear the roar, you go, what's happening? And they're like, oh, this guy, Jesus, is coming. Oh, Jesus, yeah, I heard of him. Yeah, Jesus. Go, Jesus. Watch for lunch. Go, Jesus. I think God knows that. I think Jesus knows that. I think that's why he is humble and unassuming. He's, he knows where the people's hearts are. He knows this is superficial. He knows that within a matter of days, they are going to be changed from Hosanna to crucify him. He's not basking in the glory of a king who has come to exert his authority and reign over his people. He comes with humility, sobriety, and the knowledge of what he has to do. Well, let's go on. 
As he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was thrown into an uproar, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is a prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth in Galilee. Then Jesus entered the temple. So Jesus rides his donkey into the temple, into the temple area, and drove out all those who were selling and buying in the temple courts, and turned over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer. But you are turning it into a den of robbers. The blind and lame came to him in the temple courts, and he healed them. But the chief priests and the experts of the law saw the wonderful things he did and heard the children crying out in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. They became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, Have you never read out of the mouths of children and nursing infants? You have prepared praise for yourself. And leaving them, he went out of the city of Bethany and spent the night there. What we see in this final week, what we see in this text, what we see in the life of Jesus is three things. It's a combination of satire. It's a combination of sacrilege. Combination of submission. We've talked about the satire. We've talked about the satire of a triumphal entry. Really? Triumphal entry on a donkey? Triumphal entry with your saddles, just a bunch of coats? Triumphal entry with just a crowd that's going to dissipate and go back and not even care once you've made your way through? Y'all, that's satire. Jesus is, is essentially casting judgment and dispersion on all pomposity, on all the parades, on all the regattas. He's saying, really? Really? Let me show you how true humility goes in. But it's also sacrilege. Not Jesus' sacrilege, but the sacrilege he exposes. Because when he goes into the temple courts, there's a very specific place that he went into. Where they would sell, where they had their table set up, was called the Court of the Gentiles. It was also the place where if you had been ceremonially unclean, if you were blind, if you were a leper, that's, that was your entrance into the temple. This is where the people who were the outcast could come in and worship. And guess what? They couldn't do that. Because at Passover especially, the sellers of the doves and the goats and the, and the sheep and the things that you were going to have to offer, they set, up their, they set up camp there. That's where they set up their business. They basically pushed all those people out so that they could do their business. This isn't a tirade against commerce, as, as some commentaries will tell you. I really don't believe that. Jesus isn't saying, hey, don't, don't ever do business in a church. I, that's neither here nor there to this story. What he's saying is, you're using it for the wrong reason. You are blocking the ability of the people who need to be here to be here. And so he cleanses, he pushes these people out, and he brings in, it's, it's very important that we see, he's not just pushing money changers out, he's bringing in the people who belong there. The one who are afflicted, the ones who are poor, the ones who are blind, the ones who need healing. He is bringing them into that place. And in this cleansing, 
It is also, in the healing of the people, it is also the final and ultimate demonstration of Jesus fulfilling the mission he came for. It's the surging of the song that began with Mary's Magnificat. Remember what she sang? Remember at Advent? Remember at Christmas? He'll bring sight to the blind, healing to the sick. He'll preach the gospel to the poor. He's fulfilling his destiny in the temple. So we know we're coming to the conclusion, to the resounding conclusion of the song that was started with Mary is now almost ready to burst into the final stanza as Jesus cleanses the temple court. So there's satire, there's sacrilege that he cleanses, but there's also this idea of submission. All of his life has been leading up to this week and to what is going to happen after. And he's done by obedience, in humility, in submission to the will of the Father. And he does it by faith. Friends of mine who recently went to Israel, I wrote this in the learning guide, um, said one of their most powerful experiences was at the Garden of Gethsemane the place where Jesus was praying when he was arrested. And they said what was really powerful about it was, as they went in, the, there's a monastery that keeps it now, that oversees it. And there's just a low wall, and they said they've tried to keep it as, as pure as they can to what they think it was when Jesus was there. So there's a low wall around it. And they said the crazy thing about it is when you... When you when you go in there, you can still, even today, in modern-day Jerusalem, with all the, all the people that have been added since the time of Jesus, even today, you can clearly see the wilderness. You can clearly see the hills away from town, like the outskirts of town. This is not like being in downtown New York or even downtown Fayetteville. Like, you can see escape. And they said what was... What was unbelievable to them was that they were there and they said how easy it would have been for Jesus that night to cut and run. How easy it would have been for him, knowing what was going to happen, to just jump over a fence in the middle of the night, make his way through a few roads, and be out in the wilderness. But he didn't do it. Listen, we need, to be, we need to be clear here. Jesus is picking a fight as he's walking into Jerusalem or riding into Jerusalem. He's picking a fight that he knows he's going to lose, that he knows he's going to win. That's what this triumphal entry is about, is Jesus is picking a fight that he knows he's going to lose, that he knows he's going to win. Christine Sign writes in an article we've included in our alerting guide this week. She said, like so much of life, this week portrayed the savage conflict between the kingdom of God and the empire of Rome. This was not only a personal theological statement, but a political statement as well. Jesus' belief in the liberating, inclusive, nonviolent, peace-seeking kingdom of God was over against the oppressive, greedy, elite-loving, peasant-starving kingdom of Rome. No wonder his was so, 
he was so angry with the temple hierarchy, the chief priests, the, elder, the elders, the scribes, who had become servants of the empire and not of God's kingdom. Jesus could have probably escaped the cross up to this point. If he had stayed in Galilee, stayed a wandering rabbi, stayed a healing prophet, they, they, people would have been put out by him. Probably wouldn't have killed him. He'd have kept running in and making people upset, making people angry. We wouldn't have died. No, he walked into Jerusalem. He walked into the temple courts, fully knowing what was going to happen. And he got what he was looking for. Because empire can, empire can withstand a lot. It cannot withstand being mocked. You can agitate against it. You can call for reforms. But when you mock it, when you show it up, when you show it as truly impotent, when you show something that has its whole identity in being powerful and you expose it as being impotent, they'll kill you for that. When you go into a religious structure that's whole identity is based on hey, we have the answer. We have the way. We have the knowledge, whatever it is, the ritual. And you toss those tables over, they're going to kill you. That's an unexcusable offense. Jesus does these things not out of anger, not out of hatred, but out of submission, out of love. And he does it by faith. And we killed him for it. We did. John Stott writes this. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives and positions and postures that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. And that is the offense to us. Because there's something in every one of us, in each of us, that does not want to be in debt. We don't want to be made fun of. We don't want to be exposed as impotent. And we don't want to be exposed as not being in control of our own destiny. All of us want to be in control. All of us want to work our way out of it. All of us think we live under the illusion, if I just had a little more time, if I just had a little more money, if I, could just, if I could just arrange things in the right way, I'll really be okay. I know, I know I'm in trouble now. I know it's hard now. I know there are bad things going on, but I just, need, I just need a little bit more of this. I just need a little bit more of that. No, you don't. 
The only thing that's going to happen is you're going to go deeper in your hole. The only thing that's going to happen to all of us, we're just going to keep digging deeper. And Jesus rides into all that. Jesus rides into all that. And we kill him. Because it offends us. It terrifies us. With that. That's what we did then. That's what we tend to do now. You see, the passion of Jesus, his entire life, death, resurrection, and ascension, yes. But at the center of it is this week. That's why we take time out. That's why it's so important to walk through Jesus through this week. Because it's this week that orients us. It's it's this week that reveals God and ourselves and everything as it truly is. This week mocks all our pompous pride. This week destroys all our religious works. It shows us who we are so that we can respond. In this Passion Week, Jesus strips us of all illusions that our own efforts are going to save us, that our own works righteousness will redeem us. It is only in, through, and by his submissive atoning work that we find the thunderous response to our hosannas. The healing for our sickness, the freedom from our bondages, the restoration of our sight, all of our afflictions removed, life where there was once death. We find it here. But let's make no mistake, friends. In our salvation, there is also invitation. An invitation to likewise submit and walk the way of the cross. Our lives and our freedoms and our health are now our own to lay down. Jesus gives them back to us. He gives us back our life. He gives us back our health. He gives us back our freedom. And then invites us to lay them down. Not taken from us, not forced from us. Not bought from us even. Just asked for them. No longer confiscated by sin, we can now freely offer our lives to the only one worthy and the only place where they are truly safe. If Jesus came to Jerusalem 2,000 some odd years ago picking a fight he knew he was going to lose and knew he was going to win, he invites us here and now to do the same thing. Lose our lives so we can find them. Give up what we cannot hold on to for that which we will never lose. Follow the mysterious way of Jesus by faith so we will be ever secure in knowing where we are. Ask the worship team to come back up. As we consider that this morning and this week, as we move towards Easter, our celebration next Sunday, and it will be a celebration, maybe the only true celebration, the celebration of life over death, That's what we come to celebrate. And we will be able to celebrate that all the more as we walk through the suffering, the rejection, the arrest, the pain of Jesus this week with that. But y'all, you don't have to do this. It's not a requirement. It's not an obligation. It's an invitation. 
It's an invitation to follow in the way of Jesus. That's the invitation of the table as well this morning. The invitation to come and eat. The invitation to come and drink. You don't have to do it. But it's here for you. And just as the way Jesus did everything, he does this. Humbly. Without pretense. Without pomposity. Without demands. Without violence. He offers himself. He offers his body broken. He offers his blood poured out. He said, do this in remembrance of me. In humility. In community. And by faith, we come to this table this morning. That's the invitation for us now. Will you join us? to have your ears open this morning. Come take the broken bread. Have Jesus revealed for who Jesus is. Not just Jesus, but each of us and all of us, everywhere. From those who look like us, smell like us, talk like us, to those who threaten us and scare us and overwhelm us. Everyone. Come to this table to have your eyes open. Come to this table to receive the grace that is necessary to respond. Come to the invitation to invest your life in the kingdom so that when the time comes, you will not have to fear. There'll be no fear. You may not have recognized it, but the reward will be there. Thank you.